0: This is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On November 20th, 2020, archaeologist Uzma Rizvi from Pratt Institute met with a panel of science students and faculty to discuss decolonizing archaeology, equitable practices, epistemic critique, and the speculative. The conversation is about to begin. Stay tuned for Radio Siams.
1: Hello, and welcome to this edition of Radio Siams. My name is Adam Smith. I'm the director of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies, and a professor in the Department of Anthropology. It is my great pleasure to introduce our guest today. Uzma Rizvi is Associate Professor of Anthropology and Urban Studies at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. She also holds an appointment as a visiting scholar in the Department of International Studies at the American University of Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. Dr. Rizvi specializes in the archaeology of urban, early urban environments, drawing on perspectives from post-colonial theory to poetics to eliminate the formation of cities in the UAE and India during the third millennium BC. But her work also challenges archaeology's traditional epistemic commitments, including the nature of the observing gaze, and our encounters with the things of the past. It is this reconsideration of archaeological knowledge production that is the focus of our engagement with Dr. RISBY's work today. Our conversation will focus on two of Dr. RISBY's recent publications. The first, Theorizing Deposition, Transitional Stratigraphy, Disruptive Layers, and the Future, appeared in a special 2015 issue of eFlux on supercommunity. The second, entitled, Archaeological Encounters, the Role of the Speculative in Decolonial Archaeology, was published in 2019 in the Journal of Contemporary Archaeology. Our discussion today will thus attend closely to a range of archaeological research practices that set our approaches to knowledge production squarely within relations of authority, privilege, and power. Our virtual podcast panel today includes my SIAMS colleague, Baya Dedrick, and three student members of SIAMS, or I should say four student members of SIAMS who will lead our discussion. They will introduce themselves in turn as the conversation unfolds. But first, Dr. Risby, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks so much. I'm so delighted to be here.
1: So I want to open our discussion with the provocation that I found to be at the heart of your piece in the Journal of Contemporary Archaeology. In it, you pointedly disrupt the heroic trope at the heart of archaeological discovery by asking the question, what if antiquity approaches the archaeologist instead of the archaeologist boldly journeying back to antiquity? This strikes me as not simply a daring inversion of agency in archaeological activity, but also a powerful critique of the sociology of our discipline and the myths that we tell about our work. I wonder if I could ask you to begin our conversation by reflecting a bit on where this idea came from and how you see it as helping us to reimagine archaeology today.
2: Thanks for that question. I think it opens up so many different kind of ways of thinking um, through my work. So one of the one of the sort of inspirations for this re- role reversal in some sense was that um, in my work in the UAE, as I, as I spoke about um, yesterday, um, I, I felt like I was encountering a resistant landscape, that the the land itself did not want to be surveyed, it did not want to be excavated, it did not, there was something happening um, that was not allowing me to get there. And so I just began thinking about how one writes about this, you know, And um, and so when I'd look at you know, more traditional archaeological sources, when we think about what we, how we can't survey, it's often because we're talking about land cover, right? We're like, you know, this is how you, if you're working in the, you know, in the forest area, in a tropical forest, you guys have a machete with you, you've got to clear the space out when you're working in more rainy environments or dry environments. And so our methods of encountering landscape have always had the environment as an active participant, we just never recognized it as such. We often would just talk about it as um, as an element to remove or to contend with. One of the things that working in Rajasthan did was, uh, and I think in this article, I, I refer to this a moment where, you know, we were, and just to recount for those who are listening, you know, um, my community partners and I were having a very avid discussion. Um, it was getting a little heated because it was about caste and class and about access to, to a community meeting. And the village, um, Sarbanj, the, the head of the five villages of that area, which is a political position, came over and asked us to remove our shoes and step to a different patch of earth. Because the resources in that patch of earth where we were standing must have been depleted because the energies weren't flowing and we, we were getting stuck. so what one of the things that that kind of moment alerted me to was that there was something within the political um, discourse within the the ways in which one imagine oneself in space in with materials right that this entanglement of materials we keep talking about that in fact even, the minerals, not even even minerals have an impact on the ways in which we we operate and we work and we do things, you know, and so I think um, what that made me start like I just started connecting these different kind of dots and I thought to myself, you know maybe it's actually not me who's going in and being like i am I am going to do this research. the research might be actually coming to me, you know and I've actually found that to be the case is, is when I look back on, on my work, and it's not that you you're passively sitting and just saying like. The research is going to come to me. That's not what's happening. You're you're actively looking and you're actively thinking. And inter- the your interlocutors then are the is the environment as well, All right? So I hope that kind of opens that up a little bit, um, and 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 maybe provides a good starting point for for some of our further discussions.
1: Thanks very much.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Rebecca Gritti. I'm a PhD student in the Department of Classics. Um, I study food archaeology in the Mediterranean. I guess I I wanted to press you further on this sort of Mitzi pause moment that you discussed in your um, 2019 article. I'm really glad you just recounted it because um, that was really well well set up. But um, you mentioned that it made you think about how pauses are important parts of a participatory model of doing archaeology. Would you? Be willing to expand more on that, how, how that moment then shaped the, the future interactions um, in that particular discussion. I think you, you've shared a little bit how it changed the dialogue, but I'm curious as to how it changed how you were conducting archaeology.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think um, I, I really appreciate pauses and it's, it's something that it takes a while to kind of learn um how to do because um, so much of the ways in which we are trained as archaeologists or trained as academics is, is so hyper capitalist that like we're always like producing, 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 go fast, go fast, you know, someone else might publish this before you. Um, but in fact, if you if if you just kind of think through the fact that what you are writing is actually not what anyone else can write, right? Because it's, it's coming from you. Um, and what you what what would benefit your work and, and your process more is actually to consider, right? To pause and to think. And um, this is something that I've been practicing. Like I've been doing a lot of work with slow, with the slow movement, with with slow academics. Um, And that's been for about like, you know, maybe 10 years now I've I've worked with slow design movements, et cetera. So anyhow, um, within that space, I found the capacity to go back to moments that I had already experienced look at my notes and then pause in retrospect right because in that because with the 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 sort of narrative i just gave you of rajasthan happened in 2003 right this article that i wrote um was first i think the first manuscript or the first presentation of it was in 2013 or 2014 right so you know that's that's almost a decade in between. And so to to be able to go back and look at what you've done and to pause and consider, I think gives, um, sort of breathes more room into what you experienced and it makes you think through the kinds of decisions you made. So let's go back to that moment in 2013, right? So we have this, uh, um, you know, the Sarpunch coming to us and saying, take off your shoes. And you're just like, okay, I'll take off my shoes you know and um as we were moving to this other patch of earth the conversation shifted from being a heated discussion about caste to becoming a discussion about what that action meant and the moment we opened it up and allowed for another conversation to enter in we were also able to then center where our concerns were coming from so when i said when i when i moved to this other patch of the earth one of the things i said is you know that One of the issues we were having is that when we would have our workshops inside a closed room, right, which was very large, a lot of people could sit there and everything. The issues were with because of the ways in which caste works, um, those of the lower caste had to sit at the threshold or outside near the shoes. Right. And that to me wasn't quite. It just wasn't working. It wasn't in the spirit of what we were trying to do in a participatory model. And so I was trying to move our conversation outside under a tree so that there was more space for everybody. And then there's no threshold, right? Then there's, there's space for everyone to participate in a different kind of equitable way. So the moment we took our shoes off and moved our feet to a different patch of earth, I used that then, right, to say, why don't we all move into a different patch of earth? Why don't we all move outside so we have a different way of speaking about this this issue about um, heritage, this issue about museums? This, because we were talking about archaeology, right? And we were talking about copper arrowheads. And we were talking about copper and the significance of copper within within their own frameworks, you know? And that was, it was amazing. Because in that moment, we were able to shift that meeting outside. It worked out. We were able to have a more open conversation as to why it was um it, it wasn't sitting right with me, right? That, that someone would sit at threshold, right? And because that, we, we're not all part of the same uh, social systems, right? And cultural systems. And that wasn't the cultural system that I was a part of. So it allowed me to, that pausing allowed me to do it. Pause in retrospect allowed me to go back and look at it and learn from it, right? And be able to teach from it. And that is, I mean, I, I often say that, you know, I, I wasn't trained to be the kind of archeologist I became. And I think it's because I kept looking at what I wasn't trained to be that I continue to change and and try to shift how archaeology could potentially be practiced. I hope that answers your question, Rebecca. That was a really great way of thinking about the work and and kind of highlighting the pause, I think, is a really important strand. Thanks.
3: Yeah, thank you. I think that's a a really fruitful thought.
4: Hi, I'm Aisha Martin. I'm a second year PhD student in art history. And I looked at post-independence photojournalism in India and notions of identity. Um, you brought up Ariella Azule uh, when she writes of subject-watching photographs. And I was hoping about that we could talk about subjects within uh, you know, the photographs, looking at them being uh, captured. You've also brought in Tina Campt, another visual theorist in your article. Uh, Could you talk about the relation between photography and archaeology in the decolonial moment and in your work?
2: Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you so much for that, Aisha. I think, so there are many ways in which one can approach this this question of visuality. Archaeology depends heavily on the image, right? Um, so it's not just our work in the field, but it's also our work in, in um, creating these archives and records that we have to then disseminate, right? So the image, the maps, um, the ways in which we learn how to draw pots and we shade our, you know, our stratigraphy or our, our stones, like we all are really excellent shaders, I think, in that in that way. Um, but it's interesting that when you think about what it means to represent and the politics of representation, that often isn't something that we are, um, at least at the, at the onset of our training, are taught, right? Maybe things are changing now. I think that, I mean, one of the other articles that I referred to um, was Ashish Jada's work on on, um, on Mortimer Wheeler's sort of Desire to to create the subaltern epistemic marker. One of the things that we can see from a colonial perspective in the colonial archive is certainly archaeologists have used human subjects. Right? There's there's this kind of a use of us as um, as as epistemic markers as showing that there's um, there's this really great image of that Wheeler presents of like a, a disorderly a disorderly excavation where you just see you know you know, different staff people just running around the site, right? Um, and then he shows a, a contrast of his excavations, of an orderly excavation, where you have everyone in lines kind of walking properly, you know? And so he has a very clear sense within the colonial mindset, at least within South Asian um, visual, um, I'm just thinking of the South Asian visual landscape and archaeology, you know, there's a very clear sense of how archaeology needs to be seen, right? The visual impact of archaeology and how it is then, um, submitted into the archive, um, and this is something that maintains itself even today. Like one of the, you know, um, it, when I when I excavate with ASI or if I've worked with people in the Archaeological Survey of India, you know, they are very particular ways in which photographs are taken, and it's it continues to mimic a visual trope that was set up by you know by the colonial masters in some sense because it's considered to be scientific, and this is the key point here, right? That there's a scientific way of of um, illustrating or representing what good archaeology looks like. What that scientific methodology also does is it holds bodies in place, right? One of the reasons I really enjoyed, I mean, Ariella Azula's work is amazing anyways, but in Civil Contract of Photography, this idea of watching a photograph rather than just looking at it, suddenly it made it into a moving image, right? So it changes it from a static, two-dimensional moment to a life, you know, to something where you begin to imagine a before and after a, a disciplining of the body, like being told where to stand, you know? So, um, so I think that there, so there's a lot, I mean, this is very rich I mean, there's a lot that is already been written about in terms of visual studies and in terms of the ways in which we look at the colonial photograph, how that continues today and, and one, what one does. Um, I think there's, I think the ethics of consent are very important. So for example. I only show images of individuals who have consented to be shown in particular contexts. So I will be very explicit and say, only when I'm speaking about this particular thing, are you okay if I show your image? Not just for like any any time, right? So even with my um, and I and I tend not to publish those. I only do those in talks that I tend not to record, right? So you know, there's a, there's a there's a limitation to their capacity to be seen. Um, and that is entirely up to them, right? And it's consent-based. So much of um, the ways in which we think about images and the ways in which we think about the circulation of images um, and the ways in which, you know, the image in the past has been incredibly violent, right? The image-making capacity has been incredibly violent in terms of taking taking our consent from us. That, um, for me, at least in my practice, consent becomes very important. One of the things I also am quite enamored by is language, right? I'm an anthropologist and I I was trained for field. So I'm always struck by the language of photography, right? This idea of capturing an image that's so violent. Shooting, what? Like what, you know, like what's happening here? You know, like there's this idea of shooting, there's a capturing, there's, and like all of these, um, all of the language around how an image is made, um, I find to be really troubling. And, you know, and so I try to use different kinds of language. Right. And so one of the ways in which I think archaeology or the ways in which one can speak about archaeology or the ways in which we produce images um, really can be um, you, you can you can make those changes in many different ways. So it's, it's not just the ways in which you analyze it, but it's also the ways in which you speak about it. I know you asked me like such a such a beautiful question I shed, so I'm, I've given you kind of a sliver of an answer, um, but I hope I hope that helps opening up some of the some of the concerns that you had.
4: It certainly did. Thank you you're welcome. Hi, I am Rafael. I'm a first-year PhD student in anthropology. I focus on imperial interactions in Mesoamerica. Well, there's a common thread I was struck by in both your lecture yesterday and both your pieces today. in your reflux, article you mentioned that you were taught to scientifically and ethically reconstruct the past we utilize the information that we have from excavation and bring it all together to make the most reasonable and plausible meaning and just a couple of paragraphs above you mentioned that your teacher's role that was the senior staff in the trenches i think that is something that we're not quite taught to do to actually learn from workers at excavation, mm-hmm. and then I mean that contrasts very strongly with the senior European archaeologist you mentioned yesterday who are so dismissive of well, excavation <laughs> stuff I guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: yes
4: <laughs> and then in your twenty nineteen article you talk a lot about solidarity in the decolonial movement. And yeah, I wanted to ask you, like, how you, well, how we can move forward in bringing that solidarity to excavation and excavation staff. And yeah, mm-hmm. how much it may transform the discipline. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, thank you for that, Rafael. And I'm glad you, you picked up on that. So. Um... You know this this article for Eflux was really kind of my homage to ChaCha Nawaz. You know, um, he taught me a lot, a lot. I had just gotten out of undergrad. I thought, of course, I knew everything in the world, and um, and I, and I didn't, right? Um, but I didn't know that at the time. But he had such a gentle way of of teaching me um, how to really listen to to the mud brick, right? Because I was like, this all looks brown. I can, the mud brick is really hard to learn how to excavate, you know, um, but when you get it, then you're just like, this is magic, right? So, so, and it's such a beautiful material to kind of work with. Like it just, the moment you hit it, it just, it, it makes, at least it makes my heart sing, right? I, I don't know if this just sounds overly romantic about archeology, span but you know, there is something to that, to that moment where you, when you recognize that you come up, up upon mud brick, that magic was entirely introduced to me by this by Chacha Nawaz. Chacha means um father's brother. Right? So I didn't just call him Nawaz. Um I called him Chacha Nawaz because he when I when I was there as a young woman and I mean, I had just got as I said gotten out of undergraduate I didn't I hadn't quite again not being trained I hadn't quite figured out that because I look South Asian, that when I'm placed within a South Asian context, people within that context will place me immediately into a particular kind of social cultural context. Right. And so I immediately, because of patriarchy become everyone's daughter, sister, you know, um, or niece. Right. Because there's this, there's this patriarchal protective kind of cloaking that happens. And so, And also, I think partly as much as I love all of all of the uh, people I worked with at at Harappa, there's also this kind of um, I mean, misogyny runs deep in patriarchy everywhere in the world. And so there's this inability to allow for a woman to be the director or to be, you know, in those positions. At that point, I think as an undergraduate, as a, you know, just 20 something year old, I think. It was, he had a lot more experience. He was someone who could teach me. I was okay being in, in his patronage, you know? Like I thought that was perfectly acceptable. I also had long conversations with the um, director of the field season that year, Richard Meadow, uh, who's at Harvard. And he had a lot of respect for Jajan Oz's work. And when I asked him, I was just like, you know, I'm I'm working with him and I we're all calling him Jajan Oz. It's putting me into this familial structure is that okay? He's like, well, it's gonna get complicated, right? It's gonna get complicated. And one of the things we urge our students to do when they come into the field with us is that they maintain a distance because of uh, you, you don't want to hang out with the locals. You're not allowed to go and hang out with them. But because I had access to language, because I had access to culture, because I had access to suddenly becoming part of his family, um, I was invited for dinner parties, I was invited for all sorts of things that were happening in the village. And that actually went against the rules of, of the excavation, right? For safety reasons, for lots of, difference. I'm sure there were lots of different. I'm sure I was a t- like, I must've been a nightmare to deal with actually as an undergraduate coming to this first field season and then just like going off into the village of Harappa um, because I thought I could, right? I came out of Bryn Mawr, you know, I was just like full of ideas and, and full of possibility of the world. Um, and, you know, it was amazing. It was, abs- I learned so much about what it meant to do work. It, uh, it informed the ways in which I moved forward in community-based archaeology. It informed the ways in which I thought about participatory modeling, right? Because I was allowed to do that. And I really do credit Richard quite a bit, Richard Meadow, for, for that possibility, um, because he saw that it was actually informing my own sense of how I did archaeology. So I do think that if, if, you, if you pay attention to staff, if you pay attention, if you're just considerate and, and careful about um, how you interact with the world, it does change your archaeological practice. Like, I remember that one of the times, I had this really great story, actually, about like, so here, I, again, of course, the, one of the running themes here might be like, Usma thinks she knows everything. She doesn't know everything. Um, so I'm in Rajasthan. I'm working, you know, we wake up at five o'clock in the morning because that's when everyone starts the day. I'm doing survey and, um, I meet with this, uh, with a, a not he's not the serponj of the village, but he's kind of a major figure in one of the villages where I'm about to do survey in his land. And he said, oh, I'm so glad you came in for breakfast. It was like five o'clock in the morning. And, um, so we were having our morning chat and everything. And he said, my daughter-in-law just got back from Delhi. You're going to love speaking to her because she just got her MA from, um, from, from JNU, right? From Naira University. And I was like, that's amazing. That's fantastic. And this is like early on when I'm just developing my community-based practices. It's like 2001, right? 2000, 2001. And I'm, this is like my first six months in Rajasthan trying to do the survey. And I start talking to her and, and we're, we're walking the water buffalo out to the water. And we're having this really engaged, discussion. well, I'm having a very engaged discussion. She's not saying anything. And at some point, she just stops and she just looks at me and she's like, if you've come here to find the subaltern voice, I've been speaking to her in Rajaswani, by the way, just this whole time, I've been stumbling through with Rajasthani." She turns to me in English and she says, if you've come here to find the subaltern voice, I suggest you turn back around and go somewhere else. And I was just like, well, I didn't think I'd come here to find the subaltern voice, but you are absolutely right. Like my desire to continuously ask you about your heritage and your, like I'm, I'm looking for something. I'm digging for something because that's what I've been taught to do. And that's actually not what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Why not just have a, like she taught me so much in those few minutes where she spoke eloquently, just, just she was just like spot on. She was like, what you are doing is colonial. What you are doing is really problematic. Just have a conversation with me. Like, why can't we just talk? Why can't we learn from each other? You know, and so it's in those moments that actually it does have a transformative capacity for archaeology because it changes the way we approach your standpoint, entering into something from a philosophical perspective changes when you begin to treat everyone like a human being with respect, right? Not as a subject to be interrogated. I know did an answer, again, like, I feel like there's, these are such rich questions. I feel like there's so much more I could, I could say, Raphael, but I just wanted to thank you for that because it is, you know, Chacha Nawaz was very important to me. He taught me a lot, you know, um, and he taught me really how to be, how to be human at, on an excavation as well. So thanks for that,
4: Raphael. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for your answer.
3: Hi, I'm Maya Diedrich. I am a postdoc and SIAMS and I'm also affiliated with the Department of Anthropology and I study farmers' lives during the colonial period in Yucatan, Mexico. And I really was inspired by your comments about taking a pause earlier to look back at old notes and the generative kind of the way that can generate new learnings. Um, And I guess I was also inspired by your conversation in the Chacha piece about um, improvisation and how it can, I think I'm quoting here, disrupt normative modernity. Um, And then also in the other piece that we read for today, the the quote that I have is how might one imagine a different archeology, span one that begins in a place of decolonized histories or roots. So I just wanted to Um, invite you to tell us more about the role of improvisation in your work and also like maybe that intersects to some extent with how to find different histories that allow for the futures that we want.
2: Mm, That's a beautiful question, Maya. Thank you so much for that. So, you know, one of my, um, and throughout, it's, it's interesting that you picked up on that and I wonder if that's subconsciously why I put both of these articles together because so much of what I was doing in, in the e article was inspired by Sun was inspired by jazz, was inspired by um, thinking about what improvisation means in, um, in kind of in, in jazz and in music. And um, there's a whole section of this article that got excised out because it was all of it like took the article into a different place and that was all about improvisation and and sunra and sunra shows up again in the article in the jca article right and it's again this question of disruption and or um and improvisation right so one of the things that um coloniality does in, in its ordering and in its structuring is that it solidifies and makes um almost impossible the ability to move between spaces the the capacity to exist in between doesn't doesn't is, isn't allowed because everything is categorized everything is put uh, put into a catalog everything is described and then you don't have any space for any any movement um one of the things that and i'm not a music uh, or a sound specialist but i i did i did do a lot of reading on improvisation and jazz and one of the things that i thought that really struck out to me when i was reading about um kind of the history of jazz and and when 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 those who are playing various instruments really enjoy it they really enjoy it when there's no there's no script in some sense when it's not categorized but in fact it's a conversation right and so to, in order to have a conversation in archaeology that's not scripted right or to have a conversation with the past that's not scripted i had to think about the disruption of the structuring elements that held archeology span in place. So the only way I was, I was able to access archeology span was when I looked at, looked at it through the colonial model, through the ways in which knowledge is constructed, through the epistemic sort of um, solidifying, through citation, right? Citation is really important. That's how we are just like, oh, you didn't cite Binford? How are you gonna do this, you know? So like there is, there is this re- requirement for citation that holds us in place. Right. And I'm not saying don't cite people. I think citation is very important, but I'm thinking about how you can disrupt those um, structures that hold our knowledge and our knowledge making in place to allow for knowledge sharing. Right. Because again, not against knowledge. It's it's the idea of knowledge has to be this way. I'm, you know, I'm making for those who cannot see me, which is everyone on this podcast, I'm making little boxes with my hand. to to just demonstrate visually, I'm I'm a gesticulator, to to demonstrate visually that there's a feeling I get when I do traditional archaeology that makes me feel like I'm boxed in. I can only ask a specific kind of question. I will only be funded if I ask a particular kind of question, and I cannot exist in the in-between spaces. As someone who has grown up code-shifting, as someone who has grown up as an in-betweener forever, I do not only fit in one box. And so the archaeology I do and the archaeology I, I ask people to do is to think about how to disrupt those boxes, how to allow time to slip, right? How to allow us to actually move through time, rather than carry this, this burden, um, this colonial burden of, of controlling a landscape through our cart- you know, cartographic violence, right? Like, d- there's no need to control knowledge. Knowledge is actually something to be shared. It's something to be open. And in fact, it's generative when it is open. Right. And so that's kind of where the improvisation is coming to. Right. That's that's what I'm really getting at when I'm thinking of and what what inspires me from Sun Ra's work, besides like the fantastic and spectacular nature of his his performances and, and, and the beautiful music and, and amazing lyrics, it's also this. I find the place where I can disrupt, disrupt um, archeology span and enter into a conversation with the past that's not scripted. And then the past has that conversation with me as well. Right? And this kind of goes back to, I think Adam's first question about like, what does it mean to be approached by the past? The moment you allow that improvisation to happen and you aren't bound or scared, right? That this is, there's only one way to do things. There is a different way in which archaeology approaches you, right? the past approaches you, and you become part of it in a, in a different kind of way. Thank you for that, Maya. Thanks for, thanks for such a deep reading of my work. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you. That was really inspiring.
5: I think this is such a good segue to um, some of the notes that I've prepared. Um, thank you for being here. My name is Jamie Luria. I'm a second-year PhD student in anthropology, I'm still sort of crafting the scope of my dissertation research, but I'm really interested to study sort of the relationship between sacred space, cultural memory, and heritage preservation. I'm working right now in Spain and Israel-Palestine investigating ancient and medieval ritual purification baths and their memorialization or museumification um, and sort of the the politics of memory and identity that are raised by the reappropriation or re-sacralization of the historic built environment. Um, What an amazing dialogue. I'd like to raise something that might also have as much to do with practice as with pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Um, You you describe this sort of moving in the in-betweenness of time, transition, disruption, and now in your article Theorizing Disposition, in which the archaeologists' engagement with this in-betweenness is not the same as merely moving between or across these trans-temporal phenomenon, but in the spaces that exist already between them. almost like you're experiencing or experimenting with the fluidity of time itself uh, Mm -hmm. rather than jumping from one stratigraphic moment to the next or from one discrete sort of event to another. Um, You write, every layer represents many points in time from the point it was constructed all the way to the future. Um, And I, I also work with the question of who can or does speak on behalf of the ancestors in my own work. And I find this kind of emotion work to be incredibly important particularly in the case of heritage management um, and critical heritage work and study. Um, So the notion in your words that the quote past is no longer relegated to the past with an unknown or unknowable future, that's from archeological encounters, um, and working through the potential unknowability of the past seems to be an equally important part of decolonizing discourse and practice in archeology. span And this speaks to the speculative as well. Um, So I'm wondering since, um, to quote you again, reconstruction is always improvisational. Um, how does one teach through the phenomenon of speculation and how does one teach sensitivity to these issues? Um, since I think you, you mentioned yesterday in your talk that you can attest to the ways in which this is not really taught necessarily um, in a formal classroom setting. And I believe you, you mentioned arriving at the field and realizing this is something you have to sort of learn and see to, right? So how, how do you go about teaching these, these things? Thank you. Thank you for that, um, for, uh, Jamie. And um,
2: exciting topic for your for your for your dissertation. Um, so, uh, so time, I, what I'm hearing here is a question about time, about the, um, the sort of relationship between the past and the contemporary, um, and also how one might actually then not just practice it, but, um, but teach it right? Um, One of the things that, an example I use, so I do teach this this slippage of time. I I talk about it a lot when I I teach with my students or when I'm doing any public work, um, because I think it's really important for people to kind of wrap their minds around how all of us live in simultaneous times, right? So um, one example I use is, and I'm not the only one who talks about this, right? Agamben has written about time as being multiple and simultaneous. Rex Media Collective has played with time in many different ways, you know. Um, so I, I'm also borrowing these ideas from a, from a, from a world of literature. Um, I, I often give an example of, of me excavating at Gilland, which um, in Rajasthan many years ago. And it was, we were supposed to have a meeting with, I think a government official, but it was a Friday. And the, the meeting was supposed to be held on a Friday, um, but it was also the same time as a religious holiday is coming around, right? So here I was excavating and me and um, me, me and my partner were excavating together, like our we were, we were both working in the trench and we were just excavating and, and someone came over and said, you know, we need to meet this government official. And I was just like, okay, so what time is it right now, right? And they said it's 11 o'clock. I can't remember the exact time now. I'm just kind of making up the times, but this gives you a good idea of what's going to happen, right? It's 11 o'clock. And I was just like, okay, but isn't it Friday? And they're just like, yes. And so I was just like, so what time is Friday prayers, right? Um, So Friday prayers, Jummah prayers are going to be at this time. So the offices will be closed at that time. Um, And then the person who was there with the clipboard asking us when we could meet, I said, okay, well, it's, you know, it's March 15th, let's go ahead and do this, whatever, da, da, da. And he said, yeah, but it's also this date in the lunar calendar in Islam. And that means that their Friday prayer is gonna be longer, right? So we've now got two calendars and, and two different concepts of time going. And then we figured out that actually someone else who also had to be there was, was, was participating in a different kind of Hindu ritual and they couldn't be there because it was a different, there was a different event happening based on their calendar and based on their understanding of, of time, right? And so in that one moment, here I am excavating Iron Age, right? I'm in I'm I'm in it. I'm I'm looking at the Iron Age. I'm working through 1900 BCE, you know, and I'm in, you know, 20 what was it at the time? 2000 and maybe it was just 2000. 2000, right? So it's 2000 in, in one world, it's 1900 BCE in another world. It's Friday in a Juma sense in one world. There's a lunar calendar that I'm dealing with in, you know. So in this one moment of time, I'm I'm balancing and people do this without thinking all the time in other parts of the world, right? Or maybe even in our world here. Like we're we always balancing multiple sensibilities of time. And one of the things I, I ask my students to think about is how capacious time is in, in, in terms of the ways in which it allows for us to really embrace all these different moments. Another great example, a more material example, because this is kind of conceptual, right? Material example is if anyone has seen any of the walls or anything really in Rome, right? Rome has a wall that has 16 different time periods all on that same wall because it was reused and reused and re-articulated. Re, you know, um, if you think, like I think about now, I work at Mohanjadaro now, and one of the things we often see in, in the reconstructions is that on the wall itself, you have like door sills from different time periods, right? And so you have this immense wall that's maybe about five meters high with six different door sills that are all marking different time periods, but it's all of this time. Right. So I think when you can when you when you show very specific examples to students, you know, who are who are, who are dealing mean, like we're all dealing with time constantly. We move through time we, we're, we're given this um, capacity in archaeology. And, you know, I, I roll my eyes a little bit at it just because, like, as you as you saw in the article, I started with Bill and Ted. Right. So this idea that we can move through time effortlessly. Right, is, is also an issue, like, you know, but we do it we, and that's what we're trained to do, right, that we we feel like we have the right to move through time in that way. And so by giving concrete examples that are conceptual but also visual, it usually helps students really think about how we how we traverse time in the everyday as well. So, so, thanks. I mean, I didn't really get to the memory part because that's a little bit more complicated. I think when you're when you're thinking about how memory and heritage link in, because if you have um, a very specific sense of what's happening at a specific time, that links that links you and your person and your being to that moment. That has a different that, that there's a different heaviness. Then there's a different way in which you approach the movement through time. Right, and I think that that deserves a different kind of consideration, right? And it's a different it's it's, it's a different way of of thinking through and, and balancing it, right? And and making sure that it's all heard, and, and and kind of processed in that way. But but thank you for your question, Jamie. I really I really appreciated it.
5: Thank you so much. It's really enlightening.
1: This is Adam again. Ozma. I'm very tempted to wrap us up on the theme of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure because that does not get discussed archaeologically near enough, and I entirely admire you for finally bringing that back to the position where it needs to be. But instead I wanna ask you a, a more serious question about uh, speculation uh, and decolonization. Um, and I'm drawn to this, the, this article of yours, the um, uh, Archaeological Encounters article, because I work in a part of the world where it feels like oftentimes speculation is the primary means of engaging with uh, heritage uh, it's an it's a area where uh, military conflict extends quite seamlessly onto heritage conflict. And in those sorts of uh, conditions, I'm curious about what you would think about the role that speculation plays as an epistemic for decolonizing. I think because oftentimes in the part of the world where I work, which is the caucuses, uh, uh, an epistemic of speculation seems to be an apparatus of, colon- of colonization. Uh, so I'm wondering if we think globally about speculation as epistemology, um, where does that leave us where, uh, where speculation about the past has itself been part of a colonizing apparatus? How do we thread that needle between sort of mm-hmm. creating the kinds of openness that you're looking for, uh, but also creating some kind of moral ground for uh, for under for create at least a shared basis for understanding.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Adam. Um, so I think, I mean, for me, what's really important is to separate an epistemic project from a project of interpretation or a project of um, reiteration, right? So um, for me, speculation in the speculative um, kind of capacity that. What excites me about the speculative capacity is that it epistemically can reorient and reorganize the ways in which knowledge is constructed, the ways in which we learn what archaeology can do, right? It's kind of like pushing the margins and and trying to think about all the different possibilities of what archaeology has the capacity to do. When speculative um, sort of theorizing is used as an interpretive stance, right? Or speculative um, interpretation is what is... Placed in order to insist upon or to reiterate a certain kind of colonial or imperial or certainly an oppressive or violent kind of um, tradition or a violent kind of um, state mandate, perhaps. Like, I don't know where I'm not going to go into specifics of what you may be thinking about, but I can certainly think of many examples around the world where the violence of the state is really um, at the core and, and heart of what is what is problematic. There, I don't see the speculative as being something that is a decolonial, um, it, it's just not decolonial in its impetus and its standpoint. So it's, to me, it's not a decolonial action. Um, and to me, because it is with an interpretation, I find the speculation to be problematic, right? To me, speculation, I think in, even in general, like I think speculation, um, the speculative is not really an interpretive moment. The speculative for me, at least within decolonization is really about the ways in which knowledge is constructed and the capacity that our, um, our ways of knowledge sharing or knowledge building provide us with. Um, also, like, you know, I, I don't want to give, you know, the speculative, but it can be used in so many ways. And so I'm not surprised that it can also be used in violent ways. Right. So when you're thinking about, and like, especially when you think about um, the ways in which, Around the world, the right, the very conservative right, has taken kind of progressive leftist ideas and rearticulated them as ways to maintain um, power. Right, so that's that's not a it's not a new trick. It's a trick that we've seen before. We've seen it in India. We've seen it in Pakistan. We've seen it in Turkey. Like you can just go around the world, and you can and and, and we've seen it in the United States recently. Right. So this discourse of of um, progressive discourse that is then repackaged as one way of thinking about um, control and power of the state. Um, Last night in in the talk, I, I spoke about how the discourses of care within the United States are so very different than the discourses of care in the UAE, right? And one of the things that I, we're, we're thinking about here is that when you have a benevolent monarch, or you have benevolence and care built into the ways in which state control happens, then that care is also seen as violent. And so care is something that you would think of as being a wonderful, beautiful, huggy, you know, like lots of cuddly bears coming around to give you hug kind of kind of thing is actually incredibly prickly and, and really sharp and really painful and so the the, the reception of that work of decolonization as care when i did it in um somewhere in sweden it was amazing everyone was like yes we're in it we get it and everything else in north america get it we love it in turkey in the uae in you know in these other contexts not so much right and then that's when you have to begin to question then what is what is happening here? And and there, you know, these theories are not to just be picked up and used everywhere, as, as you know, right? So to kind of really be careful and think about like, what is speculation then doing in the caucuses? Right. And and what is what is everything might actually have a sharper side that's not its benevolent side, you know, that is actually the violent side of it. Um, so first, as I said, like separating interpretation from the epistemic, which I think are two different. Uh, modes of of operation. And then really allowing, like, recognizing that every one of our our concepts and theories have multiple facets that, depending on where you place them, they kind of come out in different ways.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Rizvi. really enjoyed this conversation. I want to thank you for being a part of it, for sharing your ideas with us, and I want to thank our panel also for their contributions to this discussion. Thank you all very much.
0: you've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast, which will be recorded and posted in February, will be with Stephen Acabado from UCLA. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.